Hi, Nat Doig here. Just a heads up that although this episode is about a poisoning that happened 180 years ago, it deals with some distressing topics that are just as relevant today, such as domestic abuse and violence, as well as murder, including the death of an infant. I wanted to let you know so you can decide when and how you listen to this episode. Hello and welcome to Weird in the Wade, a podcast about all that's weird, wonderful and a little off kilter in the town of Biggleswade in Bedfordshire. Each episode, I'll tell you a tale of something strange and unique that has happened in this most English of market towns or its surrounding area. There's an older meaning to the word weird, which means to twist and turn. In Norse myth and in Anglo-Saxon times, this came to mean fate or destiny, all that was and is and all that is yet to be. Whether it's tales of ghosts or flying saucer hoaxes, the big cat of Biggleswade or the pot and poisoner, curious social history or the great swan mystery of 1935 will follow all the twists and turns and uncover fascinating stories that will speak to you today wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Weird in the Wade. It's the evening of Thursday the 23rd of March, 1843. A coach is making its way into Biggleswade after a long journey from London. We're still seven years away from the railway coming to Biggleswade. Travellers arrive by horse-drawn coach or carriage, clattering up and down the Great North Road, rocked and bumped, especially in poor weather. The passengers in this particular coach have had an unusually uncomfortable journey and it's only going to get worse. Although space in the carriage is cramped, one young woman and a slightly older man are being given some considerable space by their fellow passengers who are huddled as far away as they can be from the pair. Why is this couple being shunned? The young woman, who by all accounts is used to being stared at for her good looks, has never faced such obvious rejection. Yet, she has remained composed throughout the journey staring resolutely about her, daring her fellow passengers to meet her gaze, but they won't. They take fleeting, furtive glances, then look away. They grumble to themselves about having to share a carriage with someone such as she. They huddle deeper into their cloaks and hats away from her. Their eyes turn from her companion for different reasons. They don't want to invite his gaze. They don't want him to notice them at all because he's the police superintendent for Biggleswade, Edwin Blunden. We'll find out more about him later, but all you need to know now is he is 37 years old, cut his teeth as a police constable on the streets of London and is escorting this young woman, his prisoner, back to Biggleswade after giving chase to her across the country. Blunden has been impressed by the woman's composure. 
He had her up in front of the Lord Mayor of London at Mansion House just this very morning, and she was cool, collected and clear in her manner. Many would say she was indifferent to the august surroundings. She seems oblivious to the predicament she is in. He wonders how long this confidence will last, can last under the circumstances, but then again, she has no idea what is about to happen to her whilst he has seen this played out before. Even if he can't guess just how big and terrifying her case will become, he has an inkling. The number of newspaper men scurrying out of the mansion house after she appeared was one tip-off. As the carriage makes its way up London Road towards the centre of Biggleswade, they hear it. A roar of people. London sees a slight twitch on the young woman's brow, a slight frown. Then her skin smooths again and her eyes clear. What is that noise? A lady in a fur hat demands. Blunden pretends to listen, as if he has only just heard the sound. A crowd, ma'am. Blunden does not want to alarm anyone by saying it is a mob. The young woman in his custody, Sarah Daisley, speaks up. A crowd? What for? It's not market day? There's no fair planned? What is the crowd for? Blunden answers. The crowd is for you, Miss Daisley. Then he knocks on the carriage to alert the driver. The horses are already becoming spooked, and the voices of the townsfolk and those from the wider county who have slunk into town that afternoon is getting louder. Blunden hears the shouts of those positioned to watch for them. They're here! They're here! The carriage from London is here! Blunden knows that now the cry has gone out, more people will stumble out from the taverns and the inns and the drinking dens from the market square onto the high street, moving like one large beast rather than individuals along Stratton Street towards them, filling the road with their shouts, their stink and their overwrought emotions. He has seen this before too, though never outside London. The carriage trundles to a stop. You can't stop here! The woman in the fur hat flaps her hands in panic. Blunden ignores her. He is out of the carriage conversing with the coachman. He has left Sarah by herself in the carriage, though he is standing on the plate just outside the door blocking her escape. She wouldn't try to escape. She shakes her head as she sees the fur hat woman and her young companion lurch even further away from her now that the policeman is outside. Sarah listens to the distant voices. They are getting louder, though she still cannot make out any further words now that the shouts announcing their arrival have stopped. Sarah Daisley doesn't know it, but she is on the cusp of one of those moments in your life where everything changes in an instant and forever. This has happened to her once before, when age nine, her father was taken away to Bedford Jail. She lost everything. Her father, her mother who had to start working for a living, her siblings who went to live with an uncle, her home, her identity, how she saw herself in the world, a respectable young girl with a glowing future, all gone in a day. She doesn't know it, but she will lose everything again this time, in a matter of minutes. And what makes it worse is that Blunden just told her that the crowd was for her, that somewhere deep inside her she feels a thrill of hope, just a flicker, that the crowd is here to support her, here for her, 
to take her side, to call her name and defend her, part of her for a tiny fleeting whoop of a moment believes this and that is her undoing. Blunden is back in the coach and it is lurching forwards towards the noise, towards the bodies and the shouts. It's not long until they can all hear the cries and make out the words. Murderer! Wait! Sinner! Shameful! Criminal! Devil! Murderer! Poisoner! The carriage slows and lurches through the people as they clamour and clatter. The carriage does not stop, but Blinden is out of the door again, clambering up next to the driver. The shouts continue. The bodies seem to be pressing into the very carriage itself. The shutters are down, but it somehow makes it worse not being able to see who is out there. But Sarah can hear their voices, and she recognises some. She is certain of it. Let's see the trollop! She's sure that's Mrs. Harbird from the bakers in Potton, the one her mother uses. The carriage is crawling at a snail's pace now. Sarah's fellow passengers are fidgeting and fretting as if they cannot decide if they are more afraid of Sarah or the mob outside. You can't hide from the law! Nor from God, he sees all! She recognises these two voices as well. Workers on the same farm as Will, her late husband. They think she killed him, do they? They were happy enough to drink with her just a month ago. Let us see her. Let us see that pot and poisoner. Then the carriage comes to a halt and it feels like the crowd is upon them, tearing at the door, ready to devour them all. Blunden is back in the carriage. Outside, another whistle is being blown and two of Blunden's constables are shouting, moving people away. The other passengers are bundled out of the coach. Shouts raise, then groans when the mob realises that it is not Sarah. Blunden turns to his prisoner and sees in her face the change that has come over her. Even if she is not fully aware of it herself just yet, he can see that she is marked. She is different. She has broken. For the first time since he apprehended her, She looks scared. The same newspaper reporters who saw her at the mansion house in London on Thursday morning will remark on Friday how her countenance has changed. They seem disappointed that the spirited lass who stood her ground against the Lord Mayor of London has disappeared. Gone is the indifferent, almost impertinent young woman and in her place stands a wretched, broken creature. It's harder to be scathing of her, nor to root for her when she looks so pitiable and pathetic. The law could not break Sarah Daisley, but the accusing voices of her neighbours, the townsfolk of Biggleswade, the gossip shouted across the streets that was soon to be repeated and read across not only the county nor the country, but across the English-speaking world. Well, that was what broke Sarah Daisley. Welcome to this episode of Weird in the Wade, The Pot and Poisoner. Today we're going back to the early Victorian age. Our subject is Sarah Daisley, a young woman born in Potton, just a few miles away from Biggleswade, who in 1843 became the last woman to be publicly executed in Bedfordshire. On the 5th of August this year, 
It will be 180 years exactly since she was hanged. Her crime was poisoning with arsenic, her second husband, though she was suspected of poisoning her first and her infant child too. Some say she is the UK's first female serial killer, denied that infamy because of a technicality. She was only tried for one of the three murders she was suspected of. Others say she is innocent, a victim of a miscarriage of justice. We'll investigate her life, the lives of her husband and baby, the dramatic police chase across the country that led to her arrest, the two inquests and the murder trial she faced and her execution. It's a remarkable story that was an utter sensation at the time. The pot and poisoner, as she was dubbed, was famous not only in Bedfordshire but across the country and the English-speaking world. I have found contemporary articles about her in as far-flung places as Adelaide in Australia. Thanks to the internet, her story is still being told today. There are blogs, Wikipedia pages, TikTok and YouTube videos, all dedicated to her story. They cover the whole spectrum of opinion from salacious true crime storytelling and moralising that the Victorians would be proud of. One recent academic has even labelled Sarah Daisley a serial deviant and she-devil, stating a case that Sarah was bad to the bone and should be allowed to be remembered as such. To earnest denouncements of the Victorian legal system, where misogyny was rife and standards poor, declaring her innocence because she could not have received a fair trial. I'll try and steer a course through all of this, to present her story in as, as balanced way as possible. This is a case which is often used to bolster a very black or white opinion of the Victorian age and our interpretation of it. But as always, there are so many shades of grey in this case. It's far more complicated and interesting than most accounts give credit to. I've mainly used to source material contemporary sources rather than going to recent retellings, as very early on I spotted inaccuracies in some of the main reports. More on that later. Yet the newspapers and records of the time are also fraught with inconsistencies, inaccuracies, bias in terms of newspaper reporting and gaps that just can't be filled. But after sifting through pages of information, I think I've created a compelling story that is very much of its time, but equally strangely relevant to ours today. I'm Nat Doig, and welcome to this episode of Weird in the Wade, all about Sarah Daisley and the victims of the Pot and Poisoner. But wait... This is a podcast about history with a pinch of the paranormal, I hear you say. Don't worry, I came across this story of Sarah Daisley because of a ghost story. So let's start at the end rather than the beginning and the tale of the haunted cottage. I've come across two versions of this story and I've blended them together here because I think that's how the story has developed over time. In the tiny village of Wrestlingworth, which is nestled just below Cocaine Hatley and Potton Wood that we covered in our last episode, there is a white cottage. The story about this white cottage was being told 30 years ago, before the internet was a thing, before the tendrils and filaments of the World Wide Web had reached out and snared these old stories, twisted them round and made them new again. This story 
as it was told back then, had been passed along for 150 years by the children of the village to each other and so kept alive. The White Cottage is a pretty little house with a thatched roof and a beautiful garden. It's old, at least 200 years old and possibly older. 30 years ago, there weren't other houses opposite it, like there are today. Back then it felt like it was on its own, an outlier for the village, and the local children and teenagers would dare each other to walk up to the cottage and walk past it. They'd say to each other, That house, that house is haunted. If you hang around outside it long enough, you'll hear a baby crying. And not because there's a baby in the house, because there isn't. There are no children in that house, no babies. But you'll hear a baby crying especially at night. It's the ghost of a baby that lived in that house and its mother was a murderer who killed her husband. She haunts the cottage too with her phantom baby. You can see her at the window in the dead of night when the baby cries. She stares out at you her white face all bloated from the hanging because she was executed for the murder of her husband in Bedford in front of the jail for everyone to watch. Hanged by the most famous Victorian hangman, William Calcraft. And now she watches you as you walk past. So don't linger. Don't stay too long in front of that cottage or she'll see you. I shall catch you. So many villages and towns have these kinds of stories of ghosts or witches, wicked women who don't want children prying into their business. At one time, they were a useful reminder to not stray too far from home, to know your geographical boundaries. Don't go past the haunted house late at night. Now, I don't even know if the cottage that has attracted these stories is even the cottage that Sarah, William Daisley and little baby Jonah lived in. I see no reason why it isn't. The 1841 census has Sarah and William living together in Wrestlingworth, just months after Jonah's death. But there are no addresses given in that census other than the village of Wrestlingworth. So all we know is, is that they lived together as a family unit, not sharing their home with anyone else on the night of the census. It was stumbling across that ghost story, which was attached to that pretty cottage, that I learnt that there had been a real woman who had been executed for murdering her husband, and that part of the story was based on a kernel of truth. Sarah was born Sarah Reynolds in 1815 in Potton, Bedfordshire, though you'll read online most often that she was born in 1819, this mix-up is largely due to some newspaper reports lopping four years off her age when she went to trial. Maybe a reporter thought he was being gallant. Maybe she came across as younger than she was. I'd originally pieced together her year of birth through the 1841 census record, her admission into Bedford Jail, and her appearance in front of the Lord Mayor of London, which all tallied with 1815. Then just four days before this episode was due to be released, I found Sarah's baptism record. She was baptised in Potton on the 28th of May, 1815. Her parents are listed as Philip and Anne Reynolds, which corresponds with all the records about her life. 
It's likely then that her actual birthday was in April or early May as babies were baptised from around four weeks old once mothers were out of their confinement. I'll talk about confinement later in the show in more detail. Women who could afford to would stay at home some weeks before and after giving birth. Her father, Philip Reynolds, was a respectable hairdresser. He apprenticed as a barber from the age of 11 in 1802, then opened his own hairdressing business in Potton some years later. In the early 18th century, Potton was a bustling small town four miles northeast of Biggleswade, and to this day, woe betide any person who calls Potton a village. It seems the Reynolds were an established and respectable family of Potton, who most townsfolk would have known. It appears that Sarah's grandfather was at least for most of his life a family butcher, taking on many apprentices during the late 18th and early 19th century, an indication of his success. There was another Reynolds son, Sarah's uncle, called Joseph, who became a successful tailor. Both Reynolds brothers married women called Anne and had daughters called Sarah. Both men appear on the land tax records, paying property tax for their homes at a middling rate compared to other properties nearby, so they're not the poorest nor the wealthiest, but they are living comfortably in the early decades of the 19th century. Sarah's grandfather was reported by the newspapers as being the proprietor of the Oliver Cromwell Inn at his death, though I cannot find this pub nor any indications that he gave up his job as a butcher. Either way, on his death, all reports agree that he left a considerable sum of money to his sons. Philip decided to invest his share, but pretty quickly his investment failed, and by the time Sarah is eight, he is in serious financial difficulty and cannot pay his debts. Sarah's father becomes insolvent, and as he cannot pay, Philip is removed to Bedford Jail as a debtor. The Globe newspaper says, The whole situation preyed so powerfully on his mind as soon to wear down his frame and cause premature death. I have found a death record for Philip for the 27th of February, 1824. But for Sarah, she pretty much lost everything as soon as her father became insolvent and was sent away to jail. Her father was gone. Her mother was now forced to work as a dressmaker, no doubt working all of the hours that she could to support herself and her family. Some newspapers print scurrilous rumours about the widowed Anne, how she took up with multiple men during Sarah's childhood. But there is no hard evidence other than gossip for this. And in fact, the only concrete information I have about Anne's life, other than marriage and death records, is that she never remarried. And she worked well into her 80s as a nurse. There's no record of her even being a dressmaker. If she was a jobbing nurse, then she very likely was attending different men's houses. I know that Sarah had a brother four years her junior, so when their father died, he was only five, and is left with a nine-year-old and a five-year-old to raise by herself. Sarah will have lost her family home, and also any prospects she had, any hopes of growing up middle class, marrying up, were dashed. The newspapers claim she was forced to work alongside her mother as a seamstress, she possibly undertook some training as a milliner. 
It's clear that Sarah did do sewing work later in her married life to bring an extra income. Maybe she trained alongside her cousin, Sarah, in her uncle's tailor's shop. Her cousin remains a dressmaker for most of her life. As I mentioned, there's a younger Philip Reynolds brother to Sarah, and he also ends up in Bedford Jail, though only temporarily. In 1839, age 20, he is convicted of stealing a silver spoon from a family who he was in service to. After getting out of jail, his life working in service was over and he became an agricultural labourer for the rest of his life. It paints a sad picture of the once respectable family now scrabbling to make a living and turning to desperate measures to make ends meet. Or... Does it paint a picture of a family prepared to do whatever it takes to get what they want? I suspect the former, as Philip does not appear to have any further brushes with the law for the rest of his long life, and his sentence of three months is extremely light. Others at the time were transported to Australia for stealing less. But there is no denying that three members of the Reynolds family end up in Bedford jail within a matter of two decades. The newspapers report Sarah's fall from comfortable respectability as if it is the plot from a Dickens novel. But then, in the same breath, unlike Dickens, they seem to have no real understanding for the plight of women left destitute by imprudent husbands or fathers. They say that Sarah was of the habit of going about as a dressmaker, as if she had a choice in the matter. So many articles mention her work in this way because it was seen as less respectable than, say, working in a milliner's or a tailor shop like her cousin. She's providing cheaper seamstressing services to the lower, middle and working classes. It's as if they blame her for making a living, for having to work in other people's houses. Of course, there's also an undertone to this reporting, that she's gadding about town as a young woman, visiting homes unchaperoned. She is described as being forward in her manners and bold in her speech. It is also lamented that she is rhapsodical, which means extravagantly emotional. She's described like a character from a melodrama, but most frequently... She is described as being attractive, uncommonly so. She is tall for the times at five foot five. Her auburn hair, hazel eyes and a clear voice are all remarked upon. A black and white artist's image of her is that of the Victorian ideal of a handsome woman with a wide full mouth, clear skin, strong and neat. They paint a picture of a beautiful young woman who is confidently hustling to make ends meet. Her story sells newspapers for all kinds of reasons and the Victorians demonstrate their characteristic contrariness in the way they present her early life. One moment saying how terrible it was that her family lost their income and respectability. This could potentially happen to anyone and in the next saying how despicable young Sarah is for not just discreetly accepting her lot in life and fading away in a ladylike manner. Where today her early life story would be one of plucky underdog doing all she can to make ends meet, back then as a former middle-class girl, she was criticised for her boldness and unladylike need to make a living. Even her attractiveness is treated like it's a fault and all part of her downfall. 
it's not surprising then that she catches the eye of a local lad who the newspapers report is just one year her senior. He's called Simeon Mead. However, he's actually a year younger than her, born in 1816, as I found his baptism record. We don't know where they met, how long they courted, but they married on the 22nd of November, 1835. We do know that Simeon was described as a powerfully built man. One of the few things that we know Sarah actually said about herself is that she married too young. She was 20. And for the Victorian age, that is a little young. Women tended to marry between the ages of 20 and 24. So again, reading between the lines, Sarah must have initially been impressed by Simeon, this tall, strong man who worked in the fields. They must have made a striking couple, the powerfully built young Simeon and the local beauty, Sarah. She left her mother in Potton and went to live with her new husband in Wrestlingworth. They had been married for at least five years before their son Jonah was born. And during those five years, it seems Sarah was still working as a dressmaker to bring in more money for the couple. Some of the newspapers imply that she was visiting other men's homes in a way most husbands would not want their wife to do. But many working class married women would have continued to work, especially before having children. Whether the middle and upper classes approved of it or not, it made no difference. It was a matter of financial survival. The newspapers also reported that this outwardly attractive young couple were not quite as they seemed. And about these newspapers, we'll come back to Sarah and Simeon shortly. It was a booming time for the newspaper and magazine industry as more people were learning to read. For example, we know Sarah could read. Her neighbours giving evidence at the inquest and the trial say that she was reading to her husband when he was poorly. And her prison admittance form, dated the 24th of March, states that she can read, but her reading is impaired but she may have been able to read at least some of the stories in a newspaper. Printing was becoming cheaper. The number of newspapers and periodicals rockets in the first half of the 19th century. In the second half of the 18th century, it's estimated there were 27 new publications launched. Well, the first half of the 19th century, that number is 1,500 titles. The readership of newspapers was also expanding. For example, circulation of the Times grew from 5,000 copies in 1800 to 23,000 copies in 1840, and it ended the decade on a circulation of almost double that at 40,000 copies. The use of travelling reporters by London newspapers became more common at this time and we can see that in the way that Sarah's case is reported. It's clear that the leading London newspapers have someone on the ground in Biggleswade to report back on the inquest. The more salacious a story, the more copies of a newspaper are sold. It's still true today, but with internet clicks instead of physical copies. Having all the details first-hand from a reporter made for a much more immediate and engrossing read. The Pot and Poisoner, as the newspapers dubbed her, is an early example of the journalistic practice of giving a murderer a moniker. Sarah Daisley's case sold newspapers up and down the country and across the world. Letters were sent into the papers about her. Her execution attracted 10,000 people because the newspapers had made her case a household name. It was the equivalent of going viral today. 
Like today, many of the provincial newspapers were using the same source articles for their stories, recycling them for their local readership. So although a search for Sarah Daisley in the newspaper archives throws out many scores of articles, the vast majority are the same article being recycled. It's hard to find new and unique facts amongst all the repetition. It also does go a little way to explain why some facts get misquoted, misremembered and misreported. For example, early on Sarah's name is misprinted as Gaisley in at least one newspaper. Inspector Blunden's name gets misspelled as Blundell quite often too. It's like a newspaper version of playing telephone. However, there are some leaps in misreporting that spring out of nowhere which are harder to explain and we'll look at those later in the next episode. How the news is reported is also something important to consider. The use of regional reporters certainly makes a difference for the detail and consistency of the articles. I'm always fascinated by the level of detail that is recorded in these closely typed articles that can span many columns in tiny print. For the inquest, at least, really detailed accounts are given of the witnesses and their evidence. In some cases, where it is medical evidence, the descriptions are extremely graphic, going beyond anything that would be reported today by a newspaper. Then there are also curious omissions. Although Sarah gives evidence at the trial and inquests, her account is probably given the least space. The reporters are more concerned with how she looks, how she deports herself and her demeanour than what she actually says. We read more words reported by her neighbours and a local baker than we ever hear from Sarah herself. But if there is one thing that is given even less space than Sarah's own words, then it's any reporting on the impact that her crimes had on her victims' families. Or even basic information about her victims. The newspapers report on the great shock the whole community is experiencing, but does not dwell on how the individual families and the family members are affected. Yet, as we will explore later, grief and mourning were a Victorian obsession, just not in the modern way that we might approach such things. Back then, crime was an affront to the community and to God, more than it was seen as a blight on the victims' lives. The individual experience is overshadowed by the collective experience. And all of this means it's hard to glean facts and impressions of many of the people involved in this story, especially the victims. But when I can extrapolate information, I will try. So, where were we? Ah yes, Sarah is married to Simeon. I'm now going to report to you the facts of Sarah's life up until mid-March 1843, as they might have been viewed by an outsider, how her life was probably seen by many who knew her as a passing acquaintance, and without drawing on the gossip or evidence that is directly used to convict her. We'll come to that in the next episode. But I will include some of the facts which bring her life some colour and texture, all of this information is gleaned from evidence given at the two inquests and trial. One thing that becomes very apparent from the witnesses and newspaper reports is just how many people come and go from each other's houses in the course of a day in the 1840s. Everyone seems to be popping in and out of each other's homes, walking with each other to nearby towns and villages, and generally aware of each other's lives because they're witnessing a lot of it firsthand. 
A thing we forget nowadays as we stay at home communicating on social media, just how physically social our ancestors were. I don't think we're any less social or that they were any more sociable, but it's how we socialise that is different. Just through the court reports, a picture is painted of women sharing chores together whilst the men work in the fields. Young women learning how to housekeep from older married friends and relatives. The way women mucked in to help each other out with young babies and infants, especially when they were ill. It really did take a village back then to raise a child. And this is certainly true of how Sarah lived her life. She has a number of different young women living with her and Simeon at different times, witnessing everything that happens. Friends and neighbours are constantly coming and going from Sarah's home and she to theirs. Sarah and Simeon may appear to be an attractive couple, but Simeon is a drinker and Sarah isn't afraid to stand up to him to try and stop him from drinking their money away. This leads to tension and there are reports of violence. I'll explore this in more detail in the next episode. But the couple have a baby in February 1840 and the little one is baptised Jonah Mead on the 23rd of that month. Sarah is helped during her confinement by Simeon's younger sisters and some village girls. Confinement is the time running up to a birth and just after it when Victorian women who could afford to would be confined at home in preparation for birth and then closeted with their newborn afterwards. Many middle and upper class women found confinement insufferable, but I suspect for many working women like Sarah who could afford to take the time, it was a blessed relief from everyday life. Baby Jonah, by all accounts, is a sickly child who is known to many of the women in the village who at times act as babysitter to him. One of the women is Elizabeth Daisley, who appears to be a close friend of Sarah's and who also has a son some five years younger called William. Only four months into his short life, Jonah loses his father, Simeon Mead, who is one day fit and strong and then suddenly falls ill. He's looked after by his wife, as well as his mother and sister. Many villagers are in and out of the house during his illness. Sarah reads hymns and religious texts to her husband whilst he is suffering. He lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still water. This was not some private family affair like nowadays. There are people traipsing in and out of the house, into the sick room during his two-week illness. And although his illness seems to ebb and flow in severity, everyone is shocked when he dies at the beginning of June 1840. Simeon is buried on the 12th of June, aged just 26. Sarah is now a single mother, and I'm unsure how her living arrangements are affected, but I'm guessing they are precarious as the house she lives in was lightly leased as part of Simeon's working arrangements with the local landowner. She has no rights over it as a woman, even as a widow. We don't know how Sarah made ends meet whilst bringing up her infant son in the wake of Simeon's death, but she may have asked the village for assistance. We know she does this later. She could have asked the church and the neighbours for support. However, asking for help in this way was problematic as workhouses were springing up in smaller towns and instead of being looked after in the village, she may have been moved into the workhouse in Biggleswade if she wasn't careful. 
So, for any working-class woman in the 19th century in a similar position, the most reliable and possibly quickest way to achieve security was to remarry. And Sarah marries William, the son of that neighbour and friend of hers, Elizabeth Daisley. It's possible she moved in with the Daisleys before she was married. The newspaper certainly claimed that she was cohabiting with William. But I wonder if Sarah was taken in by her friend, Mrs Daisley, and then got together with William. Still easily framed as scandalous in Victorian times. William and Sarah marry on the 11th of October, almost four months to the day since Simeon was buried. A little too soon, you might be thinking. One thing the Victorians are famous for is their mourning etiquette. Mourning for the middle and upper classes became almost an industry. And when Queen Victoria went into mourning for Prince Albert in 1861, it was taken to new heights. But even in 1840, those that could afford mourning attire were encouraged to mourn formally and publicly. A middle-class woman who lost her husband would be expected to wear some kind of mourning attire for two years. The type and level of mourning clothes would decrease over the two-year period. Books at the time on etiquette for such things stipulate the times and levels of showiness for mourning. For example, a mother was to wear mourning attire for a child who died aged 10 or over for six months to a year whilst for an infant it was only six weeks. And women were expected to mourn publicly longer than a man for deaths of equivalent relatives. I think these stipulations have led to the belief that the Victorians did not grieve for their infants in the same way as we do today, that they somehow felt less about their children. But I think that's misleading, just as it would be to assume that Victorian men did not grieve as deeply as women did, for example, because men didn't have to wear mourning attire for as long. It's far more complicated and still tied up in stereotypes that we battle today about how men deal with emotions and mental health. When it comes to Victorian infant deaths, the sheer number of them meant mourning for infants had to be over a shorter period because some women would have been in perpetual mourning for their lost babies otherwise. But what was the Victorian attitude about remarrying? Well, it was legal to remarry as soon as the death of the first husband or wife was registered, but this would have been highly scandalous at any level in society. The middle and upper classes would expect a woman to have ended her formal mourning period before remarrying, so anything from a year or two and a half would usually pass between marriages. However, as I mentioned earlier, for working women, the choices they had were far more limited. Many couldn't afford to wait two years before remarrying. It appears Sarah's wait of four months before remarrying was considered by onlookers as mildly scandalous and possibly by a number of her neighbours too, but not scandalous enough to make her and William pariahs or marked out as not respectable, not until other peculiarities were uncovered. And it seems William's mother and father had no qualms at the time about him marrying Sarah. And it appears that Simeon Mead's family remain on good terms with Sarah, even when she remarries. Simeon's younger sister, Anne, comes to live with Sarah. Maybe this was done for the sake of baby Jonah. Or maybe, at this point, nobody was suspicious of Sarah. 
But within weeks of the marriage, tragedy strikes again when baby Jonah is poorly once more, but this time he does not recover. We know very little about baby Jonah, other than he was a sickly boy with a persistent cough who grizzled like all babies do when they are unwell. At 10 months, he was at least part weaned as he was fed sop, a mixture of sugar, milk, water and anything that could be easily dissolved and be digested in that mix. He seems to have had a healthy appetite at times, but nothing seems to help him when he has his final illness. Jonah is buried next to his father on the 26th of November, 1840. Sarah and her new husband William continue their married life together, though again it appears theirs is not always a happy one. Neighbours witness heated arguments and violence on occasions from the couple. Sarah appears to still be striving to be an independent woman, travelling about the local villages, working and visiting friends and attending local fairs in a manner that many feel a married woman should not be. Then in October 1842, just two years after they married, William is taken ill suddenly. His illness is another that seems to ebb and flow in severity and again many neighbours, relatives and at least two lodgers, girls who are working for Sarah around the house, witness his illness firsthand. William's sickness is a very public one as help is sought and nursing administered but it is to no avail and by the end of the month William is dead and buried on the 2nd of November 1842. Once again, Sarah is without a husband. Yet, by the start of the next year, 1843, there is hope on the horizon for her. Another local man, George Waldock, has asked Sarah to marry him, and the bans are being read in the local church. George appears on the 1841 census living in Cocaine Hatley, just up the road from Wrestlingworth. He's a year younger than Sarah and another farm labourer. Except this is where things take a sudden turn. Someone, and it is not made clear who, tells George that Sarah Daisley may not be what she seems. And I'm guessing to George, she seemed like an attractive young widow who had faced some considerable tragedy in her life, even for Victorian standards. It is suggested that these rumours start in church on the very day the second bands of marriage are read out, which makes for a very dramatic storytelling. The denouncement in church, when the vicar asks if anyone knows any lawful impediment preventing the couple from marrying, speak now or forever hold your peace. Did a voice call out? I do. I know a reason why they should not marry. Were there whispers of? Murder. Arsenic poisoning. poisoning. Lady Bluebeard. Bluebeard. Poisoner. Poisoner. Man is safe with her. Baby killer. Echoing around the church. It's straight out of a Victorian melodrama. I suspect there was no denouncement in church, but instead someone had a quiet word with George afterwards when Sarah wasn't with him because George decides the best thing to do is to seek advice from the vicar. And it is George who makes Reverend Twiss aware of the rumours. Reverend Twiss listens carefully as George explains the villagers suspect Sarah of killing her previous husbands and her child and that he will be next to be done away with. 
It's unclear at this point if there is talk of poison, but it would not be surprising if there was. For the previous decade, the newspapers had been full of high-profile stories of poisonings, accidental and deliberate, often caused by arsenic. We'll look more into this next time. But for now, it seems not impossible that the gossip had not only decided that the deaths of Sarah's husbands and child were suspicious, but they guessed just the tool she could have used to murder them because they'd read or heard tell of similar cases across the country. The Reverend Twist must have taken George's concerns seriously because he advises that the wedding is called off and then calls in the county coroner, Eagles, to hear the claim and the evidence convinces the coroner that an inquest needs to be held. If the timeline reported by the newspapers is to be believed, this all happens quickly in less than a week. On the Sunday, the bands are read and the wedding called off. On the Monday, Eagle says it's suspicious and declares that there should be an inquest to be held on the Friday. And to do so, the body of William Daisley is to be exhumed. This is because there is a new cutting-edge medical test that can be applied to discover if arsenic poisoning has happened and there are two surgeons able and willing to do this test at Bedford Hospital, just over 15 miles away. Unlike today, where permission to carry out an exhumation can take weeks, it seems in Victorian times, if the coroner says it needs to be done, then it's done. And we know nothing of what William's family and friends thought of this. I guess they had no say in it. I suspect that the timeline is slightly longer than portrayed by the newspapers, but not by much. I think it may have unfolded over a couple of weeks rather than being crammed into just one, especially when we consider what happens to Sarah. In her account, she is shocked to discover that her marriage offer from George has been withdrawn and that at the same time her neighbours are turning their backs on her. She also suddenly loses all her work and has to ask the parish for assistance. The village refuses. She is a pariah, so she leaves for London with a friend, another young man, in search for work. To the village, the coroner and the police, it looks like this. Sarah's marriage offer is withdrawn and she is accused of murder. Her neighbours and the parish reject her pleas for help. When the inquest date is announced and she is summoned as a witness, she cannot be found. Sarah has absconded and she needs to be tracked down. Superintendent Edwin Blunden of Bedfordshire Rural Police is called in. He is superintendent for Biggleswade and its surrounding villages. He's a man of 37 with a wife and young children. He lives right in the heart of Biggleswade on the high street, possibly opposite where Station Road now intersects, what was then one large market square. He was born in Peckham, which in 1806, when he was born, was a village on the outskirts of South London, but the metropolis was encroaching fast. We know that in 1839, he's one of the top constables for the Metropolitan Police. At least a dozen Old Bailey court reports include his evidence from that year. It's likely he moved to Biggleswade as superintendent in 1840, a well-earned promotion after being an original Bobby or Peeler for the Metropolitan Police in its infancy. Blunden is on the case. 
The locals are happy to spill the beans about their sightings of Sarah. Some say she was heading to see a lawyer. He's told she's in the company of a young man named Samuel Stebbings. They were seen heading towards Bickleswade. They were then spotted heading down the Great North Road on foot together by the landlady of the new inn near Baldock. While Superintendent Blunden is ferreting out these tip-offs, the exhumation of William's body takes place. There are no journalists present for this distressing act, but it's fair to guess that villagers, even his family members, were there to watch. Hovering on the outskirts of the graveyard, knots of anxious people whispering, comforting one another. We can guess this because of what happens a month later, when journalists are present at another exhumation. The coffin is taken to a nearby barn and the jury who have been convened for the inquest, made up of all men, witness the coffin being opened and identification of the body being made. Herbs are placed about William Daisley's body and around the coffin as a kind of offering, some kind of acknowledgement of the disturbance of William's eternal rest. The remains of his body is then conveyed away to Bedford Hospital for tests. But the doctors already have their suspicions because of the unusual preservation of his remains. A telltale sign of arsenic poisoning. Blunden, meanwhile, has a choice to make. Does he wait to find out the outcome of the autopsy and the tests? Or does he chase after Sarah before she has had too much of a head start on him? He can't arrest her or compel her to come with him if he has not serious suspicion that she has committed a crime. Even then, in 1840, he must have a warrant, but he makes the decision to go after her to London. Whether it's on a hunch that the evidence will be forthcoming or because he thinks he can persuade her to return with him voluntarily to attend the inquest, he decides not to wait and races down to London in search of her. And there, I'm afraid, we will have to leave the tale for today. Blunden on his way to London. The doctors at Bedford Hospital working with their apparatus testing for poison. William Daisley's parents and siblings in shock after the week's dramatic turn of events. And Simeon's family and friends wondering what this all means for them. Could the rumours be true? In our next episode, we'll find out how Sarah is tracked down in London, follow her appearance in front of the Lord Mayor, and not one, but two inquests she faced, followed by a murder trial. You already know how this story ends. She's executed for murder, but not for all of the crimes she's accused of. There are some outrageous claims made in court, and her execution is attended by 10,000 people. And just three years ago, a tiny macabre souvenir from the day of her execution, went to auction, making 10 times its estimate. That is the power her story still holds. But what's behind all the sensation, the moralising, the rumour? Did she really say she wanted seven husbands in 10 years? And if she said it, did she mean it in the way it's reported in the court? Could there be an even darker tale wrapped within this already tragic story? Did... Sarah Daisley murder her second husband in revenge after he poisoned her infant son, son of another man, who he did not want to raise. Find out on the next episode of Weird in the Wade.
thank you so much for listening to this episode of Weird in the Wade. Part two of The Pot and Poisoner will be out on Monday the 28th of August. This episode has been a tough one to make. There's so much information out there to sift through and I've not been very well and then the subject matter is quite dark and unsettling. But I am really glad that I've done it and I hope you found the story so far interesting and that you want to hear more next time. If you have any thoughts, theories or questions, please do get in touch at weirdinthewade at gmail.com or on social media. Links are in the show description, including a link to the show notes and transcript. Also, please do get in touch if you have any suggestion for future episodes, stories you'd like me to cover. I really do love hearing from you. I'm also looking for any witnesses to big cat sightings in Bedfordshire, especially around Biggleswade for September's episode. I already have four witness accounts, but I'm looking for more. And for Halloween, I'm covering haunted pubs in Biggleswade or nearby. If you have a story about spooky goings on in an old inn or pub, please do get in touch. I want to give some shout outs to some of you who have supported the podcast over the last three months. Firstly, a huge thank you to Rowan, who after seeing my Kofi fundraiser offered me his lav mic. Last week, I used the funds raised so far on Kofi to buy the mic off him at a really reasonable price. I'll be using the mic to record my first Big Cat Witness interview this week. My next shout out is to those who have supported the podcast through donating on Kofi to the Mic Fund. So a big thank you to all my Kofi supporters and especially John Hawkes, Rhodey, Riley, Cab Sav and Eerie Edinburgh, plus my anonymous donators too. Thank you so much. By the way, Eerie Edinburgh is a brilliant podcast about ghostly goings on in Edinburgh and surrounding areas in Scotland. I really recommend you give them a follow and listen too. I'd also like to thank Owen Staten, the wonderful Welsh storyteller, for inviting me onto an episode of his Fire Pit Fables, a spin-off of his brilliant Time Between Times podcast. Do go and look that one up too and give it a listen. I'm hoping Owen will join me on a future episode of Weird in the Wade as well. Keep an eye on the socials for more information about when that will be out. Finally, if you are able to, please can you follow, rate and review the podcast. It really means a lot to me and helps other people find the show. Weird in the Wade is an independent podcast produced by me with help from my friend Tess on music and some voice work. I do everything myself from research, writing, presenting and producing the podcast. I've taught myself sound engineering and I'm still learning loads as I go along. I do all my own publicity on social media and although clearly I love doing this, it really helps if you rate and review the show because it means more people will find the podcast. So if you're able to support by rating and reviewing, I am really, really grateful. Thank you. And... If you are able and can spare the cost of a coffee, then you can also buy the podcast a coffee on ko-fi.com. The link is in the show description. All money raised goes into either equipment for making the podcast or production costs. 
thank you again to all of you who have supported already. Weird in the Wade is researched, written and presented by me, Nat Doig. Our theme music and the Pot and Poisoner theme was composed by Tess Savagir. Additional crowd voices were provided by Savagir and McCohen. All other music and sound effects are from Epidemic Sound. <laughs>